Well, that's messed up. The people people should be throwing vials of saliva at anyone, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender. The one like neo-Nazi dude who like who gets it, and they're like, "All right, Jim, start <laughs> spitting." <laughs> <laughs> they're getting him Gatorade. Yeah, he's just drooling into a bunch of vials. It's like it's like it's like when that when Amy Mann's character in The Big Lebowski has has her toe missing. Oh yeah. That was actually my toe that was missing in the movie. Ah, <laughs> it was a stunt toe? Yeah, it was a stunt toe. Welcome to episode 22 yeah, of the Exit yeah. Tangent Quarantine Dispatch! So- you all, so what you all can't see is uh, when Miski said that he was looking at his hand because he had drawn, he had written down episode twenty-two <laughs> in large, you know, sharpie. Uh, all right, so we've been doing this for like twenty-four weeks now. Yeah, so something like six years. 20, 26 weeks now. No, nah, it's been more than that. We started in uh, early April, I think, or so late March. It's been half so a year. Like March, early April. Yeah. yeah. It's been a half a year. How much is that? Like a, a a trimester or two at that point? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let, let, let me let me uh, let me let me go through the archives real quick and find out. The first episode was recorded on March 18th. So yeah, it's been almost seven months, six and a half months. So how have the hosts changed? I am your something. I don't know. I was. One of the exit tangent original hosts with Noah, but now I'm just kind of the announcer at the beginning. That's my title um, <laughs> of this podcast slash radio show. You're because, also the recording engineer now for art for the three of us at least. Yeah, within the bounds of this room. Um, but I am introducing my three other co-hosts that I have every week. They are always here. They suffer this with me. This we are condition. omnipresent. Correct, and I wanted to check in. On how your life has changed for the better and for the worst. Worse. Between March 18th and now. I will start with the person who touches their nose last. Wait. All right. Hector. (laughs) You'll start. You could have just said nose goes, you buffoon. All right. Um... So, so I found that someone uh, close to me has COVID. Um, they they live in a in a big white house. Um, they <laughs> they also, you know, for some weird reason, have a you know always spray tan their you know their face and their body. But but yeah, I'm I'm praying for him right now, wishing a speedy and quick recovery. Um, and that nothing else goes wrong. And what's the good side? That was a good side. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the bad side then? Uh, not being able to go to uh, fill up my jug of water without people staring at me. Where are you filling up your jug of water? Where aren't I filling my jug of water? Or where am I? All right, I'll take that as a cue. I'll move on to Hadrian. Cue. Interesting you say that. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) 
Stop being a student. That was cool. Yeah. I, I'll probably be employed soon, so I'm looking forward to that. Those are some positive changes. Yeah. I guess negative change, it's much harder to talk to strangers. What do you mean? Like, I feel like it's so hard. Like, like, like I'm so out of practice of, like, having conversations with people that I don't really know that well that it's, like, it's it's definitely like it feels noticeable where it's like if I'm in a situation where I have to talk to someone I'm not like super familiar with like I just like like I don't know I just feel like it's harder than it should be I mean you you you've you've been working this whole time so yeah you're gonna, and and you and you recently changed jobs so so you were sort of talking all kinds of- if you want we can do a little role play you know uh, I can I, pretend to be someone you don't know oh okay yeah uh, let, let, let's let's maybe not pat out the length of the podcast with this with this uh, but <laughs> all right and our third co-co-host is Noah hmm for the worse I would definitely say de- definitely my physical condition I feel like I'm in a lot worse shape than I was oh, absolutely uh, most of like like I I try to get most of my exercise from team sports uh I play hockey in the winter, and I I play soccer uh, in the summer and uh, and fall. But team sports don't exist anymore, so that's sad. Um, for the better, I don't know. I've read more. I've played more video games. I've been chilling, so can't complain there. All right, all right. Oh, I've been reading a lot. Yeah, just so many things like most of the time you know you know there have been a lot of like reading assignments for this podcast and like i don't end up always finishing them completely but i do spend a lot of time reading a lot of different things so now that we've clarified those intimate details of our lives i wanted to get to the main theme of this episode which was brought on by me last time which was that I wanted to hear interesting life tales of people that you have not met in your own life. And these people could be anywhere from the world, from any time period. I just wanted to hear the unique life path that they carved out, whether it was kind of thrust upon them or whether they sought it out themselves, sort of how it all happened, what it meant for them and the world around them. I know that everyone here has has done a lot of research, and that happens generally because this is sort of like a last thing on our checklist because, you know, we all got our own occupations and our own things to keep us busy. But that's fine, even if you don't have a really fleshed out persona to to talk about. I think the questions that it raised, the questions that that idea raised in your head of looking for this sort of interesting life paths, that's also something I wanted to talk about as well. So if you don't have a particular person... Uh, just ponder and bring up a question that you have about why people do things the way they do in their own lives and, and we'll kind of chat it out, if you will. So, I don't have a, a roll call in order, but I thought that the first person could be the person whose person is the earliest born or the, the people's point who's earliest been. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. But it's like the the least recent, least like recent the person, the oldest life person. of consideration. <laughs> yeah, my person was born in 1926. Is that l- later 
than any one of your persons. I think everyone I thought of was fairly recent. Yeah, same. Nectar? What? I, I was wondering if the people you had considered of their interesting life paths, are any of them born before 1926? Oh, yeah, for sure. All right. Then you go first. I will not. Remember I said that I... Uh, I don't really want to do it half-assed, so I'm not sure if I really should. Then do it full-assed. <laughs> no, but that's, that's the problem. Pull yourself up by your ass, Hector. Pull yourself up by my ass, Do you remember Exit Tangent when we were at the radio station? It was always full-ass. <laughs> uh, Pull yourself up mm. by your ass, assless chaps. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but uh, I like wanted to do a proper, you know... Uh, you know study what? Study of this person, but I like you know can't. I had a very extremely busy week, so I just wanted to chill and maybe ask questions about some of the other things you guys were talking about. Oh, I was gonna extemporaneously make up a thing on the spot about a about a person that I that just came to mind just now. I'm, so I mean, I can I can I can tell you what I was thinking of who, who I was thinking of talking about. Um, then do it. Yeah, so uh, I have him up here. Yeah, so the person I was uh, wanting to talk about is a man called George Harriman, uh, born August 22nd, 1880, in New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, he is famous uh, as uh, an American cartoonist who's best known for doing the Crazy Cat comic strip. Um, I'm not sure like how popular it was. I mean, I, I, it is popular among people who do comic strips i think but it's definitely very very influential like uh from some of the other either comic book artists or comic strip artists that i know of like will eisner charles schultz um you know uh that uh, he did um peanuts peanuts yeah yeah and uh, art spiegelman uh, mouse bill watterson um calvin and hobbs uh, calvin and hobbs uh yeah so like all these people like uh, had drawn had said that they were influenced by Harriman's uh, work on Crazy Cat, which uh, I've I have a biography of his um, that I bought about a year ago, I think, a year or two ago, um, that I wanted to read read this week but wasn't able to. But I have read um, quite a bit of uh, Crazy Cat comic strips, and not only is it really good, um, it it's one of those things where it always makes me ask, like, you know, huh, I didn't know you can do that. Um, and I, I love it when I think that or, like, that thought comes up to me in my head because a lot of the times that happens, that mostly occurs when I'm reading uh, some particular author's book. So I'm like, oh, I don't know, you can write this way or say something like this or reading a comic book and I'm like, oh, I don't know, you can, you know, make something like this. Like when we were talking about Watchmen, Um so same thing with Crazy Cat and the comic strips. There's a lot of interesting way that uh, he lays out the strips. Um, and it's also very, uh, um, I guess I don't know how to explain it. Um, it is experimental page layouts, I would say. It's, and the backgrounds are kind of shifting. Um, so they kind of seem dynamic in a sense. Uh, and the dialogue is very, uh, it's unique. Uh, maybe I would say like idiosyncratic a bit. Um, Can you briefly explain the premise of Crazy Cat? Well, it's 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 um it was like a comic strip that 
ran from like 1913 to 1944. Uh, you had, um, you had like a, you know, a couple characters. The main ones was uh, Crazy, which was uh, like a pretty simple-minded cat. And then you had a, t- a short-tempered mouse called uh, Ignatz. Um, and uh, Crazy has like a unrequited love for the mouse, but Ignatz like hates Crazy and always tries to come up with plans to throw bricks at Crazy's head, which Crazy thinks is, you know, like a sign of affection. A sign of affection. So they sort of downgraded that on Penis for the football thing, which is much less violent. <clears throat> yeah. I, uh, some, some, some of those tropes, yeah, like, do still exist. I've actually been looking at some of these comics, and, like, this, uh, like, like, Crazy Cat, like, a lot of the words that he says are misspelled, um, like, which suggests an accent of some sort. It's like, um, like, like, in the Wikipedia article, there's, like, uh, uh, you know, throwing bricks at Crazy's head, which Crazy interprets as a sign of affection, uttering grateful replies such as Lil Dolink, all is fetful, or Lil Angel, uh, which is also misspelled. And it, like, looks like fucking uh, excerpts from a James Joyce novel. <laughs> yeah, you ha- it's like, it's one of those things where you have to, like, sound it out for you to, for you to get it. Um, but that's, like, some of the really cool stuff um, about the strip. Like, you have to like really read it, um, and you, you, if you like look at the Wikipedia page as well, there's like an example of one of like an example of of one page, one entire page of the strip where like the panels are, are laid out in a very interesting way. Um, it's it's really cool. I uh, really like it, and it's it, it, it it's interesting. Like this existed like before, um, like a lot of more. Um, postmodern, um, like I want to say art, but I, I guess like I mean I, I would consider comic strips as art um, and comics. They are, but I guess like just pre- yeah. pre- prefiguring that uh, like the current era of um, of cartooning, I guess. Hmm. So yeah, so I I, I really enjoyed. Um, I mean, reading Crazy Cat, but I at some point in the future I like will get around to reading George Harriman's biography. Uh, because I, I don't know, I was really, really, really fascinated um, by this comic strip. It sounds like a. Tom oh, I guess and another Jerry. thing I would I would also add is that um, I want to say that um, this is what I got from the biography, but um, that George Harriman um, he like was perceived to be like your typical white man. But as it turns out, he actually was uh, born to um, um, to uh, Creole uh, mulattoes. Um, but essentially, he was like a, a, he was of mixed race. But his family like went to great pains to make it as if he, you know, as if they weren't. Um, so it's really interesting. Hmm. Like white white passing is that what people say? Yeah. So like everybody assumed that he was just like this white guy who, uh, who 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 drew this, and he sort of did also like look like yeah he was definitely white passing, but he was not white in any sense of the word. I see. I guess if you're just submitting comics to a a newspaper or some board of publishing, you know, you usually don't send a headshot with it. I guess that's one thing I heard about in the UK. People often include headshots with resumes 
or applications of certain sorts. And that it's not something that happens in the U.S. It happens in some parts of the U.S. Some parts? Yeah. What, like, what do you mean? The, like where? Um, I think it's in parts of the South, though I'm not entirely sure. But like at the last place where I worked, um, there was like one of the other interns was doing some kind of like resume design pattern thing um and and one of the resume templates like included a headshot in the resume because apparently Mm -hmm. this is something that like people in some parts of the country uh like like think is an okay thing to do for resume like for me i think that's just ripe for like discrimination but like yeah i don't know Maybe they just don't care or something. Yeah. I mean, there's already enough discrimination that happens through just look, uh, looking at people's names. Yeah. You, resumes. you look at a name and you're like, that's Scandinavian. We don't, <laughs> we don't want those people. Maybe you're a, you're a furniture company and you have something against Ikea. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. That is a precedent for people being mean to each other. Yeah. Um, huh. So, do you want to keep talking about Crazy Cat? Nah. Well, okay. We, we, we'll move on. <laughs> Music break. Tequila. All right. So, I think my character per, well it's not a character study it's a real person who lived a person study um starts uh at the chosen reservoir in 1952 i'm pronouncing that wrong it's it's um i guess chosen is the japanese pronunciation of a, of a lake so they call it a reservoir because it's really just a path of a river that opens up into a lake and then it, the river continues on till the to the Korean Sea, you know, to the west of the peninsula. Um, it has a Japanese name, it has a Korean name, and it has a Chinese name. This reservoir sits currently between the borders of North Korea and China. Though at one point in time, that whole area was occupied and called Manchuria in the early 20th century. And this occupation was fairly harsh. It was oppressive, and many Korean-born Koreans were pushed into a form of, of, of basically servitude, ser- servitude to Japanese overlords, who used the Koreans locally to mine, farm, and work factories in that area. Through a long war of independence, the... Korean people established some form of independence. And this took a long period of time after World War I finished out and bloodshed was, was seen by the, the proxies of, of Japan and China and the Korean people themselves. And eventually, some form of a state began to emerge, a, co- a combined state though with many political entities fighting for power. All the while, a young man born to an upper-middle-class family named Shin... Uh, what was it? Song Ox. Sang Ox was born. 
And he was being raised in, at first, this Japanese-occupied territory, later an independent Korean state in turmoil. As he was a young boy, he was mostly shielded from these atrocities, though it was hard to shield anyone from all of them. And as he entered into his young adulthood, he was captivated by this new art form of film. Film had finally reached this part of the world, rural uh, and the city life of Korea, especially through its independence. And filmmakers would bring in foreign films and they would basically talk over them in translation because um, they don't have like subtitles like we do today. And he was captivated by these people transcribing these amazing stories from around the world. And it was something that he wanted to become a part of. So he found a way into a Tokyo art school. And he learned the art of film, which was bustling in Tokyo at the time. And in the, in the art schools, originally teaching students in painting and the more physical arts, was now captivated by photography and film as mediums for expression and artistic uh, design. He later returned to Korea, finding that the turmoil had increased to a, a, a level not seen before. Communists were beginning to run guerrilla and subversive efforts in the North, while the now Americanized Japan and America itself, the U.S., were supporting political candidates in the South. Everything was pointing to war, and a few years after the Japanese occupation, uh, everyone was just basically preparing on both sides. In the South, you had the U.S.-supported proxy government, and the North, a pseudo-government of sorts that emerged from the original independent government of Korea um, that was backed by China. However, what was originally a backing at first later became uh, a full-on cooperative conflict. All the meanwhile, Shin, this aspiring filmmaker, was working as an assistant on a film called Viva Freedom, a film that would go on to tell the story of Korean independence and sing hopefuls for a united Korea for all time, to a nation to challenge the world. And he was very much a person who wanted to see a, uh, a Korean state, a peaceful one, for the benefit of all Koreans, not the one that he grew up into, a, Korea, uh, a Japanese-occupied state. But try as he may, and still learning how to capture people's attention and, and, and weld minds together with film, he was not able to do anything to stop this massive global conflict from arising. So, as I mentioned, we start our story and where Shin's life really takes an interesting turn at the Chosen Reservoir between China and North Korea. During the Korean War, it first started out, as, as, as I was mentioning, just kind of a, a civil war between the North and the South, the, the communists in the North and the dem- democracy-based South, more of a republic. Um, and they were fighting, and they were mostly a stalemate. It was a form of trench warfare that would occasionally burst out into a uh, sort of woodland guerrilla fighting, people running around, small arms, um, occasional armored vehicles, but it was not by any means the armored sort of total war conflict that the world had just emerged from, World War II. Uh, Shin, in the meantime, he was born in the north, and his family was moving to the south. 
the South being backed by the U.S. for a longer period of time than the developing country of China had all of a sudden electric lights moving, uh, running water. It was a lot more stable than the communist uh, building north, the communist building up in the north and, and working to mobilize troops and basically conscript the young men of the north who were working in farms and mines, the same farms and mines originally built by the Japanese decade, two decades ago. Anyway, so Shin moves to the south, and in, in the south he's safe. At the same time, Douglas MacArthur of U.S. General World War II fame comes ashore with around 30,000 troops in what's called the X-Corps. These troops were actually considered part of the U.N. Security Council Army. Uh, and the X-Corps starts moving north. At first, as an expeditionary to support the South Korean soldiers, they begin to take on direct conflict with the communist guerrilla armies. At first, commandeered by Koreans, North Koreans themselves. This army inflicts devastating tolls on North Korean communist armies. They basically trample anything in their path and until they get to the Chosen Reservoir. At the Chosen Reservoir, Douglas MacArthur doesn't want to stop. This is uh, right around the, the beginning of the really flaming hot part of the Red Scare, where America was deeply worried about communist influences around the world and an overall communist takeover of the world. And Douglas MacArthur, with the backing of the UN, which was basically all NATO countries at the time, was insistent upon driving that army of 30,000 troops not only past the border of North of this North Korean state at the Chosen Reservoir, but into China all the way to Beijing. They were interested in quashing the communist Chinese government in the same war, broadening this conflict to engulf all of East, far, the Far East Asia. At the same time, Mao Zedong, the leader of China, orders 120,000 troops, Chinese regulars, to stop just supporting the North Korean armies, but to engage the ex-corps in full force. The ex-corps proceeds to hunker down on a set of hills on the edge of the Chosen Reservoir and fights off wave upon wave of Mao Zedong's army, led by their top general. And in this conflict... Uh, over 20,000 lives are lost as the X-Corps retreats, not just from that set of hills by the Chosen Reservoir, but all the way back to the DMZ, what becomes the DMZ, a line, a parallel on the earth between what later becomes North and South Korea, North, North and South Korea, and an armistice is signed, although the war is never officially declared over. It's still, apparently, well, in some ways, war is still going on today. Shots are still fired. <clears throat> Shin, the film, aspiring filmmaker in South Korea, is, is shaken deeply by this, these events and the fact that his home, he'll never return now to his homeland in the north and how many lives of his friends and family didn't make it through this conflict. And he's still drawn to film and he wants to express his anguish about this whole process in film. And he goes on to become a prolific South Korean filmmaker. In a nation torn by war, he was able to, in some ways, use his privileged connections in Japan to establish filmmaking 
enterprises in South Korea. And as one of the only filmmakers in South Korea, he dominates the market there and becomes well-known around the world. For about 30 years, he goes on to create two, three, even four films a year, which is almost unheard of. And these are feature-length films. It's almost second nature to him. He's a man very much in, in love with his own work. And coincidentally, he falls in love with one of his own actresses. Ooh, you know, who would ever, who would ever think of that? Um, a beautiful young woman, his same age, uh, when he was in, you know, in his 30s. And she, she is known for having very emotional, very captivating roles as everything from princesses to queens to warriors to... You know, you name it. She was very multifaceted as an actress, just as much as he was multifaceted as a, a director. And he's around, he's approaching his 50th birthday. Um, and he, he has his life kind of, you know, sort of behind him. And he's starting to worry about whether he his best films are behind him. When he learns... Uh, that his wife is divorcing him. He goes through a, a midlife crisis of sorts, maybe a mid-later life crisis, and he starts producing at a lesser rate. Later on, a few years after the divorce, he learns that his wife was taken to North Korea, kidnapped, in fact, in, in the 80s. This is the 80s now. So many years have passed. And he's worried, and he begins searching for how this happened, and he wants to get to the bottom of it. There was a statement released by North Korea that said that she went willingly, but that didn't happen. <laughs> uh, what actually happened, uh, from her own accounts, because you know this story has a slightly happy ending, I'm, uh, if, if I can spoil it. Um, how dare you? She was told <laughs> she would be going to Hong Kong, for film business, and when she arrived at the harbor in South Korea, she was taken by unarmed uh, and unnamed assailants, stepped into a ship, and sailed to Nampo Harbor in, in North Korea, which is something that's happened more than a few times in, in the history of the two Koreas. So Shin starts searching for his former wife. Some people say they were estranged because of his addiction to work, his inability to let go and begin living their actual life together, his constant demeanor of her as his actress and not that of others. It was, yeah, it, like many relationships, I had a few problems. Regardless, he began searching for her. And he, and he goes to Hong Kong, where she was supposed to end up many months ago now. It's been a few months. And he's walking along the street, trying to retrace what her steps could have been. When he's uh, when he was walking by, and a car opens up, and a few men pop out of it and grab him, and he gets in the car with them, over under threat of his own life, and he wakes up the next day in North Korea, and he's like, "Dang, <laughs> who would have guessed?" Swiped again, <laughs> yeah. So, and they hold him in a prison camp, and it's grueling work. Um. And he's shaken to his core by the brazenness of his assailants and and what's happened here. It's and humorously enough, when he arrives there, they treat him lavishly. 
it is obvious that they know he is an art- artist of some sorts. And, they know, and obviously they chose him to kidnap. But after he rejects their invitation, as they say, he's, he's sent to a, a prison camp. He, he rejects their lavish treatment. He, he is sent to this prison camp. And for, th- for three years, he's, he's working on the, under the hot sun under threat of, of pain, under threat of, of, of even capital punishment. Unsure of, of what they want from him, why he's there, shaken to his core. And, 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 pu- and propaganda is pushed on him uh, relentlessly. All the meanwhile, these three years, his, his former wife, actress, co-worker, her name is Shin. No, her name is Che. His name is Shin. Che. She is being touted around by a heir apparent of North Korea, Kim Il-sung, of, of uh, the supreme leader at the time. is the heir apparent. He's being uh, he's parading her around as his his jewel his treasure he's he's kidnapped from from South Korea and that she's come here you know willingly fingers you know air quotation marks and all the North Korean generals and his confidants you know laugh with him and say ha 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 you know you have this artistic like collectible of sorts it's it's weird in the most weird of ways. And she's wondering why she's been brought to North Korea this whole time. Whether she's just some tool to garner favor or a party trick to cater out to the powerful guests of the country. And she thinks of escaping, but she worries she'd never make it. She worries about her family and her friends back in South Korea, around the world, as she's traveled the world many times at this point as as an actress, world-renowned. Until one party, she is brought out in lavish accommodations and in wonderful dress, and she sees an emaciated shin. Down to his bones, he's he's sunken in face, sunken in eyes, sockets. uh, And they start talking during the party. And Kim Il-sung says, isn't it so great to have you both together? I would uh, be so, it would be so wonderful to, to have you, you know, here in the, in the kingdom, you know, like that kingdom, it's, it's whatever they call it, North Korea. This uh, people's democratic Republic. Exactly. And he starts joking and laughing with them. And as you know, with like any dictator, if they laugh, you gotta laugh. So, they, they entertain him, <laughs> and, and they give each other like they give each other like side eye for like the whole party, and they're like, you know, what's going on here? You know, and this it's is like it's they've been in, in North Korea for years. One of them has been in prison camp. The other one's been treated lavishly and, and treated like this like pony, you know, show pony. So they're both like looking at this whole situation like differently, but they both know they both want to get out of whatever this weird ride is so later that evening Kim Il-sung actually has them guided to their own private accommodations a lavish sort of house all to their own but as they both know it's probably bugged it's probably got microphones and cameras in every corner so they begin to run all the faucets in the, in the bathrooms 
in the house, and they begin whispering in each other's ears as closely as they can, just so worried that someone would hear them. And they begin to ask each other if they're brainwashed, if they, how, what they actually truly believe anymore, what they really want. And they begin speaking in, in tongue, you know, in, in tongues at first, you know, speaking rhymes and riddles, you know, just to avoid like, you know, being the one who's not brainwashed and being outed by the other. The sort of crazy mind tricks that you have to do just to keep yourself safe in such a authoritarian, dictatorial country. Eventually, they trust each other. I mean, for goodness sakes, they were married for, for years and years and years in the past. They, they do have this, you know, even though they had their problems, you know, like, especially in this situation, they, like, they begin to confide in each other. And not the same love is formed, but a new necessary love, something that they need to have in order to survive this, this imprisonment. In the next few months... They're left to their own. They're told through a messenger that Kim Il-sung will call on them when he would, would like to. But for the most part, they're just left there in this house. They, they have some ability to go out and visit stores and, and watch, you know, get, get some news from the outside world. But of course, it's all censored. So they're really living like lives in purgatory in these lavish combinations. And all their guards and all their, their their servants of sorts are all brainless to them. And they're just wondering like when their moment will come and how they'll they'll use it. And you know, the the, the sun rises and sets and rises and sets, and they're getting anxious together in this house and they they begin to tell each other stories and whisper what the what's happened to them. They're never telling each other all the details because even to them they've blocked it out in their mind because of the trauma that has been induced on them until eventually they're told that Kim Il-sung would like to see them now. They're both shaken. Shin goes forth and meets with Kim Il-sung and, and, and they together hatch a plot to, to record him on one of the recorders that they have in the house, the audio recorder they found, which was a clue for what Kim Il-sung wanted. When they had the meeting with him, they learned why they had been brought there, which was now years ago. Kim Il-sung goes on to describe to, to Shin and, and Che that he has brought them here to produce films. Cool. Films of their own choosing and of their own artistic design. Kim Il-sung was saying how he wanted to give them full artistic freedom within the bounds of censorship to create amazing films for the world and that everyone in the world would know these amazing films and would look to North Korea for, for the future of film. In the world. And that's why we starved you for five years. Exactly. <laughs> to get you in the right headspace. Which is, it's interesting that you say that because Kim Il-sung went on to complain about the North Korean film directors that he's been working with over the last few decades because you might not know this, but Kim Il-sung is an amazing film buff. He went on to show Shin and Che 15,000 films in a three-story library. The funny thing is, is that only he can watch those films. Mm. And he watches them all at the same time. <laughs> the <entire country> <laughs> like Ozymandias. <laughs> yeah. Callback. Callback. Of course, Shin and Che see this and they're like, <laughs> right. you know, they're a little scared. Um South Korean films make so much more sense to me now that I'm hearing this story. Oh my gosh. 
So they're also like nihilistic and fucked up. Kim Il Sung is looking at again Chin and Chai, and he goes on to talk about how, yeah, the North Korean directors that I work with, because because Kim Il Sung is an executive producer on every single film that North Korea produces. Mm-hmm. Just FYI, it's kind of weird, but I mean he's the only one with any money, so that makes sense. So. Again, he's he's always listed as an executive producer, um, but he he hires from North Korean art schools, which yes, there are apparently those uh, the best directors he can find that are North Korean, you know, raised directors. And he says that they uh, they never they never branch out from a very limited set of topics, such as uh, the original founder of North Korea, the Supreme Leader, his father. Um. The Japanese occupation, uh, communists eventually just uh, ru- ruling the world. It turns out that most of the films that he that these directors want to make are like super patriotic, which makes sense. Like it's they do make a lot of those and then sell those to the people. What they sell them, they just give them to the people because it's communist state. But yeah, anyway, anybody who wants to make a different kind of film is in a prison camp, probably. Exactly. And it doesn't do wonders for creativity when 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 you're kind of working from a limited set of things that you're allowed to <laughs> express talk about yeah it's and, like it's like the uh, it's it's like the bear in that episode of Black Mirror that only has like the happy and sad face mm. that can only express two things very binary yeah it's like monkey loves you and uh, monkey needs a hug instead instead it's like it's like uh, North Korea is great communism will will, uh, rule, the will rule the world. <laughs> Uh, and he says that under so- Kim Il Sung tells Shin and Che, uh, socialism is terrible for the arts. My directors will only produce enough to get their rations, but they don't care about anything further. Mm. Uh, he says to Kim, he says to Shin that in, in you as a director, you've had to work, you know, blood, sweat, and tears to produce the amazing films that you produce, like any other director of the world. And that's why North Korean films are terrible because of socialism. <laughs> cool. And and Shin is just like flabbergasted internally. Exter- ex- externally, he's smiling, laughing, and thinking, "Oh, please don't kill me." Um, and eventually, Kim Il Sung gets to the kicker, which is, "I would like to give you both of you full artistic freedom among you know within the view of the censors, censors to produce amazing films that the world will see and will be able to be called North Korean films." And they're like, okay, whatever you say, because that's the only answer you can provide. Right. And they are quest- sequestered off to a another villa of Kim Il-sung's dynasty. And they are put on a strict regimen of four blockbuster films a day over the last, like, 40 years. So they're just sitting there, like, watching films from the 40s to the 80s. Like, four films a day, 12 hours, basically, in the theater. And Kim Il-sung is often there with them whenever he's not doing business work. He's, like, critiquing and pointing at the screen. He's saying, like, do this, don't do that, do that, do this. Yeah, they're watching Citizen Kane, they're watching 2001, they're watching White Men Can't Jump, all the classics. Exactly, exactly. You know, everything before the 80s, yeah. basically. <clears throat> and eventually, it gets to a point where Kim Il-sung is like, all right, now you have the artistic freedom, you know, you go out and make films... And, and and they start making films in North Korea, mid-80s. Mid they start making films in North Korea. Um, and in the back of their mind, Shin and Cher are like, you know, we should, 
we should we should figure out a way to escape using this like film thing. And they're like, all right, let's try and let's try and film make a film internationally. You know, like let's go to like Europe or something, and, <laughs> and then run away like there. Oh my we'll god! We'll be able to find someone who will help us. Yeah. Um, but but the first few films they start doing are strictly in North Korea, so that's not really an option yet. So they're going to cater favor and wait until they get that opportunity. And they go on to produce a, a lot of amazing films. Um, they all have slightly, as you might imagine, like North Korean friendly political undertones, because um, that's like what they won't censor at all uh, in this country. But for for all intents and purposes, they bring up concepts and have emotional characters that sharing emotions that like North Koreans haven't shared in like decades. Um, and it's it's amazing. In fact, one of their movies they create that that becomes really popular in North Korea is even peddled outside of North Korea. Is a is a love story um, between a king and a woman. The king has to move. Uh, not king. It's like a duke or something. The duke has like another fife, so he like moves across the country. Another king or another du- du- uh, duke is like in the area and tries to court her, and and he she does she rejects him because she loves the original duke. It, it's confusing, but like it's like feudalistic Korea, like love story. People l- eat it up. Because there hasn't been a love story in North Korean film for like decades, so they see like there's like a one kiss in the whole movie, and people just lose their minds. They're like, yeah. affection. It's uh, yeah, they're like in the thing exactly. Like, like, I can't handle this. <laughs> to, to, a, to a veiled kiss. It's not even like you can't even see their faces like smooching. It's like behind a, a curtain. You see the silhouettes. <laughs> Instant. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh anyway, Shin and Che are like. Bam, you know, we were, we're, you know, we're helping North Korea, like, hit the world stage. And, like, it's not a bad movie. Like, I mean, for all intents and purposes, like, this is a good director, this is a good actress, like, they're making fire. And and it, and it gets extravagant, like, Kim Il-sung basically gives Shin a blank check to do whatever the heck he wants in his movies. Uh, to the point that he wants, he wants to write a film about mountain explorers. And they go to, they actually take helicopters to actual snowy mountains in North Korea, you know, he wants to he wants to have a train blowing up in a scene and so he asks for a model train like a little tiny like model train kit to blow up the train and then have some filmmaker zoom in on the train kim il sung gets him a fully packed train filled with dynamite and says <laughs> go nuts oh you my know? god i can't believe like like this is the, like, like you know the, i don't want to get political here but <laughs> this is the benefit of communism but it, it it's kind of like it's kind of sick to me that like um, that 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 this sort of thing is like interpreted as communism. <laughs> that people say like, "Oh, the communist North Korea." When there's this like just blatant, like like just the worst inequality that you could possibly see. There's like constant famine in North Korea, and but the leaders can afford to blow up a fucking train. <laughs> it makes no goddamn sense. It, it's it's absolutely ludicrous. The the expense expense at which Kim Il Sung is willing to go to ensure that these movies have like everything they want. Um, Shin at some points is kind of disgusted by the fact that he'll ask for a person who looks a certain way and they will send out envoys to scour the entire country to get the person who looks closest to his description, like draw and drawing. Like they'll, they'll no nothing holds back. Like the director gets everything he wants. He's like JJ Abrams, George Lucas to the max, like beyond well, it would be like, I, I think as far as fussy directors go, uh, Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. Uh, who else? Anyone else? 
Stanley Kubrick. That's it. He's the only one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Shin, in, an, in a really weird way, like, begins to like this. Because before he was kidnapped and brought to North Korea, he was worried about his best films being behind him, <laughs> growing older, sort of being passed over for younger and newer ideas in film. But now he's slowly turning into Michael Bay. And now, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's slowly getting everything he wants in the film world. And he goes on, um, and, 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 and he goes on to produce all these films. Uh, Shay, the other time, at the, at, by his side, is starting to get restless. Like, when are we going to try and push for that international escape plan? And Shen's like, you know, it's kind of nice here sometimes. <laughs> you know, like, oh, this guy lets me blow up trains. You know, you just act, you know? So, it gets awkward, but at the end of the day, Shin is convinced, like, yeah, okay, this guy's a dictator, madman, mercenary, ma- you know, killer. So, yeah, we should probably try and do that. Uh, but but while they wait for their, their opening, they still have a few more films in their docket that they wanted to finish, that they told Kim Il-sung they'd finish. One of which is called Pulgasari, if I'm pronouncing that right. Oh, yeah. Pulgasari is a Godzilla-like movie. Um, I think one of us has watched Godzilla before. Have you yep. watched Godzilla? Uh, Noah's a huge Godzilla fan, if I recall correctly. <laughs> <laughs> Hector, I thought you've seen Godzilla. Uh, I thought so, too. It turns out I was hallucinating. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, never mind, then. <laughs> you, you made a whole radio show about your hallucinations? <laughs> no, but, um, yeah, I, I actually... So I'd never... Aside, outside from Godzilla, the only other, um, like kaiju or even to cut um oh fuck how do you pronounce it again i'm gonna quickly look it up it's like uh tokusatsu or something uh tokusatsu yeah so aside from godzilla the only one that i know was gamera um the gamera i watched um the the movies of gamera that's it i've never uh before had heard of uh pulgasari before yeah, it was, so it was, but I, I looked it up. Um, it was interesting to uh, see uh, about. Uh, well, obviously the background of the film. You were just explaining it now, but um, aside from that, just the, the fact that uh, the 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 staff from um, Toho Studios, so the, they're the people behind Godzilla, um, that they also participated in making the special effects for for this for this movie because they were tricked into going there. <laughs> that sounds cr- crazy. That would never happen. Uh, yeah, yeah, actually that, that fits the bill completely. Yeah. They thought they were going to go film in China, but uh, yeah, it turns out that they were going to, uh, <laughs> they got duped film for this movie. <laughs> so the they duping fool me once. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the president of South Korea goes on the radio and says, all right, everyone, we're getting a free express ticket to Canada. Everyone gets on planes and they're all flown to North Korea. It's like, oh, unified Korea. Bam. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> Kidnap the whole country all at once. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, I didn't know that little, that little nugget of uh, storyline. but So they go on to produce one of their last films in North Korea before their international escape plan is hatched. Um, is to create Polgasari. Pulgasari is is like Godzilla. Basically, what happens is there's a is a feudal lord who's like um, a merc- merchant, a feudal lord slash merchant. He like sells goods and exploits the working class of his of his fife, his like his owner his land that he owns and the and the serfs on it. He like exploits them 
and like sells their goods and only gives them like very small wages. Uh, he's like, you know, the capitalist pig, right? Go figure. It's a North Korean movie. And this like young girl of a, of a, of a hardworking farmer, dude, a uh, young daughter, um, like his, 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 her dad is taken away and like she is injured. Um, but before he's taken away, he makes a rice doll where it's like a, uh, a piece of cloth, like sewn in the form of a doll, but filled with rice grains. So, you know, like any doll, I guess a doll. And she like buries the doll and then like bleeds on the land where the doll was like laying. The doll comes to life and becomes a giant metal monster. And with like, with like ox horns, giant ox metal monster, like Talos from Greek myth, but like giant Korean kaiju version. And it has a, it has a hunger for metal. So it like it will eat anything metal, and it will eat whoever like holds metal. And all of the king, like all of the merchant king's mercenaries have like long metal pole axes. And so it's like this like giant ox kaiju is like walking around, like describing the soldiers eating them. And you know she's like, yeah, woohoo! Like down with the down with the bourgeoisie. Um, and eventually, like the king defeats the monster. But then she bleeds on the ground more, and then the monster reawakens, and then they finally defeat the king. There's, like, a lot of twists and turns. It's like like any Godzilla movie. It's like, is it dead yet? No, psych! You know? Um, and eventually, after the monster, like, kills the merchant king, and, you know, the proles have risen up and, like, taken back their land, the, the giant kaiju ox turns on the farmers, and it has, starts to try to eat their metal, like, pitchforks. And they're like pit, uh, you know, pickaxes. And the little girl is like, "No, like, don't do that." Like, you know, it turns out that sometimes a member of the proletariat uses the power vacuum to seize it for him, for their own self. It's like a slight, you know, smirk at Kim Jong Il's family. Anyway, uh, she like sacrifices herself by like jumping into the creature's mouth, and like it can't handle that and blows up. And that's the end of the movie, basically. Um, and around that time, Kim Il Sung was like, "That's glor, that's brilliant, that is film masterpiece." Um, and he's like, "All right, you can go do an international movie." Um, and they choose to go and do a, a movie about Genghis Khan, but they fly to Vienna. I don't know if you know about Genghis Khan, but he didn't do a whole lot of his horse riding in Vienna. He got pretty far though. He got pretty far, but like I don't know, that's that's not where I would fly if I was making a film about Genghis Khan. I would start with yeah, Mongolia. You're trying to escape from a, from a, from a <laughs> quote unquote communist dictatorship, uh, you you'd probably you, you, I mean Vienna. There are worse places. Yeah. So they get to Vienna, um, and they tell their like North Korean guards with like dark sunglasses and black suits, you know, we're we're just gonna go for a tea, you know, and they try and 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 they try and get you know a tea, and uh, they meet up for an interview with a Japanese um, guy at some place, and they're like, you know, you know, we want, we don't want to be with North Korea anymore. And he's like, okay, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And they like run for the U.S. Embassy, and they like just barely make it into the U.S. Embassy with like armed gun guards before the North Korean like black suit, black eyeglass people like grab them, like very much like a movie moment, if you will. Right. And they are flown back to the U.S. for asylum. And they eventually um, spend some time in South Korea, you know, with armed guards around them. But they're 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 out of there. They're out of that terrible experience. And you know, 
Shin is like, you know, I wish I could blow up some more trains, but you know, like that episode of horror in their life is kind of over and they're, they're recovering from their trauma over the course of a few years. They, they're internet, they're seeing an international news from all of this. They tell the true story as opposed to the North Korean one they've been peddling for years. Um, and that's where the odd life path kind of ends. Um, Shin, uh, doesn't ever lose his taste for directing. He goes on to Hollywood in the U.S., where he is in asylum now, and produces a, a number of really popular like kung fu movie, like martial arts movies, which do pretty well. Um, and he really just like enjoys that his life and slowly recovers from that trauma. Um, and similarly with Che, she does a little bit less acting than he does directing, from what I understand. But they're they're past that terrible moment in their life mm. do they remain amicably divorced i think they're like oh they, they remarried actually mm. in in north korea and under under certain pretenses um but they remained friends and until the death i don't know if they were remained technically married but like you know they were on good terms yeah yeah you really should have gotten last wow it's just like like, like Hector was over here like turns. this guy makes comics about a funny cat and you're like these people went through some shit. <laughs> <laughs> look at these decades of suffering. Wait, I also looked into his Wikipedia page and actually I want to say that um, all that stuff was like fluff material. <laughs> like it was, it wasn't that necessary until you know it was leading up to the climax, which Misky, you know, unfortunately didn't didn't say so i'm gonna say it for you all anyway it was where the two people um, kissed behind a veil no it's uh when when he and his wife moved to la um he worked under a pseudonym called simon sheen and guess what he uh, directed while he was there i knew he did three ninjas that's why i was talking about martial arts films destroy terry was the name of the film you bastard. Um, yes, it is Three Ninjas Knuckle Up. But more importantly, he was executive producer for Three Ninjas High Noon and Mega Mountain. And that movie is really funny. Yeah. It stars uh, a Mr. Hulk Hogan. Yeah, this man. This man's life. I, I, did, I did focus on the North Korea part. But like, this man's life does have amazing twists and turns on all sides. Being born in an occupied state of terror you know, getting out of that state of terror through a war, going back to a state of, or going, becoming a film producer, going back into a state of terror, becoming a film. Yeah. It has nuances. I think there's a whole biography on this man. It's just because it's just so twisted and turned. It's like, they, 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 they should have done the, it's like the, it's kind of it reminded me of Argo, but like, I don't know. It's like Argo in reverse. <laughs> Cause he is getting himself out. They're getting themselves out. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And like, oh, there, there are a bunch of other films that they produced both in North Korea and outside of North Korea, this duo, or on their own, in their own individual lives and careers, um, that are, are all, could be spoken of their own accord and own worth, uh, just as long as I gave that a brief summary of, of, their, mm-hmm. of their interactions in their lives. There's an episode of This American Life that sort of details this story and gives some more details in other, in other directions, but... I gave some of the details that were most impactful to me. Cool. Uh, There was a thing that I kind of wanted to talk about, about like more recent sort of developments in the changes of life paths in, in the world. Um, 
I want. I was gonna. I was thinking. I was gonna talk about somebody specifically, but I, then I realized like I don't really know enough about this person's life to to really say uh, a whole lot. Which we don't have to say a whole lot. We can wrap this up like in, in twenty minutes or so. But like, um, that just the whole phenomenon of like YouTubers is like 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 or, or like various other sorts of like career paths, you know, professional podcasters, like all this all this kind of like. I guess, I guess it's like you know. Uh, gig economy workers or like you know these like entertainment independent entertainment people all this kind of stuff these are like new things um that didn't exist before and that don't require being shipped to a dictator country uh for for eight years uh to achieve (laughs) um and so i I guess i guess i wanted to to sort of um discuss that a little bit because there are some interest there are some interesting ways like uh like I, I know some interesting stories of like YouTubers specifically or like people who are like musicians who are YouTube adjacent, people like Lewis Cole or Bill Wirtz, for instance, um who like, you know, they like already sort of are on an unusual life path because, you know, like, I, I guess, like, you know, musicians also do go to college, um, but, you know, it's like getting a job or whatever is not necessarily the same kind of thing as what you would normally expect, right? Like, you know, you kind of expect to, like, after college, you know, you get a full-time job and then you go from job to job. Or, well, that's that, that's more of a recent thing, too, actually. But, like, um, you know, th- that seems to be, like, the norm is, like, you know, getting these rather full-time jobs. And then musicians are just kind of, like, I don't know how, like, I guess they're a form of independent contractor or freelancer or whatever. Like, you know, they play shows, you know, they attend recording sessions when those exist. Um, and they do all, uh, and, and like they make money off of that kind of stuff. Um, th- there are some other like interesting things where like people's careers just sort of like swerved in the direction of being a YouTuber that I think is also interesting. Like the whole thing of like CGP Grey, the fact that he was like a, uh, he was a physics teacher before he became like a professional YouTube person. Um, like, you know, back in ten, about 10 years ago, he made that uh, UK Great Britain video yeah. and then it got super big. And then he just like, you know, he kept making videos. And then after a while, he just sort of doubled down on it and kept making videos until he made it into his like current career. Um, and, 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 you know, he, he was like, 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 I know that he specifically was just like trying to be self-employed, basically. Like the whole reason, like, like he's he's a very cynical person, I think. Like, like in the like, um, like th- there's there's two ways to interpret the word cynical, right? Like, like, um, like, like one way is like assuming that other people have are are, are very self-interested, and the other one is actually being self-interested. And CGP Gray is the latter. Um, and and so like like the whole reason he became a teacher is so that he could have summers off so that he could work on side projects so that he could become self-employed. Um and like YouTube just happened to be the thing that like became successful for him. Um and but that but that's like also like kind of an unusual life path and so like I don't know. Do you guys have stuff to add to this the summer itself that facet of education um leaves a lot of, of open like time leaves a lot of open time for both students and teachers to like explore their own interests in life if they have the money to do that because you know yeah that's 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 true and it's also if they have the time because if uh you know the students are have reading shoved down their throats for the uh, summer because of uh required summer reading yeah that's a thing in some places i i, I, I mean i'm obviously you know, saying that in jest. I, I like the books that I read. Um, I had I'm pretty not saying this held at gunpoint or anything. I had but, pretty uh, free summers. But yeah, I mean, generally, yeah, the summers are free, except for the last like maybe seven, 
10 days. There was one summer where there was a summer reading project, and it happened to be the one summer that I, like, transferred to a different high school, so I didn't know that this was a reading project. So I got to school, and on the first day of school, they were like, your dialectical journals, whatever the fuck that is, is due in, like, two weeks for this book that you were supposed to have read. I don't even remember what the book was, but I didn't do the assignment, because I, like, I was like... Everyone else had the entire fucking summer to read this book and do whatever a dialectical journal is. And A, I don't know what that is. I still don't know what that is. And B, I I don't have time to read this book. Like, I'm a pretty slow reader, and I was even slower when I was, like, 15. So, like... Having that, ha- having that like sudden thing was like, what the fuck? And then like, I ended up getting like a zero on this assignment that was supposed to be done over three months that I didn't even know about, and it like, and it was like, what the? F- how the fuck that is this? Sounds fair? traumatic. I don't know if it, traumatic is the right word to describe well, it. Okay, traumatic. Definitionally, traumatic is like an event or process that like causes some mental anguish. Yeah, I mean, sure. Like, in perpetuity. Wait. I mean, MIT is traumatic. Uh, Hadrian, is is this the reason why you uh, have this intense, like, fear of of reading? <laughs> Sometimes when I go walking down the street with Hadrian, he like shields his eyes from all the sides. <laughs> like, no not, turn on what? <laughs> it's not because he has any you know social anxiety or just doesn't want to see people at, at their eye. He's just like not doesn't want to see the sign that says uh, cafe open. Uh, hiring new employees because he doesn't want to, you know. Yeah, he doesn't, doesn't want to read. read. I mean, I guess like like it it, w- it would be strange for me to have a fear of reading from from being given a reading assignment that I didn't know about. Because like, shouldn't I? Shouldn't I be like? Shouldn't the like sort of nervous tick that develops from that is that I should just read random <laughs> things in case I'm just asked to do a dialectical journal, whatever that is. You're going to walk into like, Look, man, office. I'm no psychoanalyst, all right? Mm. I'm just a guy that talks about uh, comic strips. Cool. <laughs> You're going to walk into an office one day and they'll be like, how was your day? It's like, the store outside is selling and it's like, the special is uh, wonton soup. It's wonton soup. <laughs> These pretzels are making me thirsty! <laughs> Yeah. All right. This whole uh, YouTube thing, uh, it, 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 it got me thinking, and I thought and I thought about this at times before. Is like I, I'm, I wonder what the long term kind of like, like what the long term trend of of this of these kind of like employment situations is. Like, like, you know, is YouTube going to be, or, or is, like, online video creation and content creation in general going to be, like, a, a big employment opportunity for the next, like, you know, coming decades? And are people going to continue to be able to make a living? Or, you know, is there, you know, is there a future in which, I don't know, the advertising money dries up or there are other forms of online media that end up shunting it out? Mm. Well, you got, like, uh, YouTube when... People do live streams. People have the there's, there's the option to do donations and super chats and things like that. Like that stuff, is, I think was already like baked into Twitch's platform. Yeah, yeah there's Patreon but, but, too. But it, mm-hmm. Right, right, and then yeah, exactly. And then there's then there's Patreon as well. So I think at least in the past five years, there's definitely been an uptick in that. Yeah. And I've also had the same thoughts, Noah, like, because uh, I also watch a lot of YouTube, like, I have probably every day. An economics um, take on this. What? What? What is it? 
So uh, I think that a few things will happen as this industry is more fleshed out and adoption becomes more widespread. Uh, first of all, the supp- the demand might increase slightly, but it will it will increase not in proportion to a onslaught of supply. I generally think that there are more and more people getting into streaming. Right, there's an increasing number of people who are in- interested in in producing this good this service, I guess, of streaming for others to watch. In fact, I know I, I know like four people now that stream in some capacity. And I, I didn't have anyone who I knew who did that like a few years ago. Anyway, so the supply has increased. The quality, the average quality will probably go down. And the like donations or money spent per creator will go down because it will be averaged more amongst many creators. So as a as a platform for new people to create and create a livelihood, it'll be harder and harder. The, the only thing I want to push back on is the idea that like the average quality will go down. You know, when people said like, "Oh, texting is making people worse at writing." Like, as more people do this kind of thing, people have a sort of like better vocabulary for, or I don't know what the right term is, but like a better sense of of like what makes like good video and good audio and all this kind of stuff that's like necessary to be a good streamer. And I think that like it actually becomes easier to make. Better con- and maybe you know it'll be like like you know empty calories like you know the Doritos of streaming or whatever. Um, but that streaming in general is like mostly just a bunch of bullshit anyway. Do you want to hear some of my arguments for why I think quality will go down? Sure. All right. Uh, one way in which quality can go down is that the barrier to entry can actually become lower as more people enter this service mm-hmm. because more people know about it. So more people create tools to allow people uh, easier access. To this industry, mm-hmm. such as uh, broadcasting software OBS, yeah. which has exploded in use. But early on in YouTube, it wasn't as prolific as it is now. OBS has been around for many years. It's been though. around for many years, but the features and the depth and the, the and the interplay functionality to all these different systems and across OS and all that, it hasn't been as obviously the software has improved. Mm-hmm. Right, and by improving, making it more easy to use bringing in more people who are like on the fringe of whether or not they would choose to use this software, whether they would choose to stream at all. Mm. Um, you get people who do it, don't care enough about the technology, create a mediocre product. Mm. That's one reason I think the average quality would decrease. Two, I would make sort of a gold rush analogy where the first few people in California when the gold rush started were making a lot of money, making finding a lot of gold, because there were a few people panning in a big river. Right. All right. And when you have more people come to California to pan for gold, each person gets less in their pan. And they're sort of ruth- more ruthless. And they're like trying new things. And it's kind of messier. Yeah, I, I, can, I, I can actually, I do see that. And that's a good analogy. Because like, in this analogy, the gold is people's like, attention. Attention, yeah. Yeah. You you couldn't have a Captain Sparkles or a, a Yogg's cat Yogg's cat Yogg's cat yeah yeah you couldn't Yogg's have cast, those yeah. things Jesus today. what a throwback <laughs> yeah I know right you couldn't you couldn't I, I think okay I, I I shouldn't say you can't have those things it would just be incredibly hard to cater the favor mm. in order to produce that production mm. again I think well probably like um yeah it's true like 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 maybe it is true that the average quality would go down because of that but I do think that like 
maybe like the amount of people who are actually good at like what they do and like produce like good quality content will actually like it's like those people crop up like more often i would say like maybe they don't get as much money because because of the divided attention but like but you know Th- th- there are there are lots of like great creators like and and there continue to be great creators it seems at least from yeah, what like I we always tell. have world class athletes yeah even though these sports have been around forever yeah and people like to play you know pick up basketball or whatever it is whatever the term is, yeah. <laughs> is, is pick up basketball a thing pick like, up a game yeah. okay yeah um like you know in their backyard or whatever or, or they play you know with a hoop attached to their garage yeah um yeah. And so, like, you know, things like stream, I guess, like, you know, something like a Snapchat story is like kind of a, or, or Facebook Live, or Periscope, those types of things, or like amateur streaming or whatever. Um, yeah. Know. I don't know. It, 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 I think it's an interesting thing. And like, there, there is a lot of sort of like flood of the market type of things. And it's like, you know, there's streaming, which is just like a bunch of bullshit, whatever. Like, it's like, you know, I, like now that I'm in like, like fully into adulthood like i don't understand why people would spend their time doing this watching streaming i'm I'm an old man (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's well it seems like a huge waste of time and like i don't really like like any of the people that i don't know man it seems very lucrative it is it it, it does seem very lucrative but like um but then there's there's like other kinds of things you can do too with like even with like youtube videos there's people that like post shit every single day i also don't see the appeal of that um but then you also have like the video essayists like contra points and h bomber guy and other people that I can't think of because I'm not subscribed to them um, that, that like make hour long videos about whatever the fuck. And like, that's also like going to be a, a, a more popular format that also takes up a lot of time. But like, I, I think like personally, like I like, you know, I, I can't speak for like the rest of humanity, but I definitely appreciate like, um, like YouTube creators that manage to be successful while also like not feeling entirely tied to like a regular upload schedule like of course everyone said like like if you hear about this kind of stuff enough you 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 hear about the algorithm you know like the fucking machine learning network stuff going on in the background that recommends videos to people um like and, and how it's like oh the algorithm will like you better if you upload frequently and regularly but like it is interesting that there do seem to be people that still manage to to find success despite not really sticking to a schedule like the two people i mentioned earlier as well as cgp gray who i also mentioned earlier there's also kurtz Kassat. um adam neely kind of uploads once a week but not not very much recently has he been uploading once a week and he's very successful too bill Wirtz, like oh my god like as, as much as he wants to upload regularly and i know this like he he hasn't uploaded since march of last year um i think he will have a video soon like by the end of this year hopefully he'll have a video uh, and then hopefully he will be making videos more often <laughs> afterwards um but like yeah all, all of these youtubers like the ones that i actually subscribe to like like are people that don't upload very frequently that like see, put a lot of time and effort into their into their videos and that people really seem to enjoy and watch the shit out of like i like that stuff um and i don't know like how i got onto this but i don't know <laughs> well because i was a natural progression of of the of the i don't even know what you call it i'm the stream gonna, like, of consciousness well well i was gonna say platform but it's like not necessarily like just youtube i mean it's just it's like the format of it um like submitting things online as you had like like all the stuff that was very early on were like either shit posts or 
just videos. Videos about atheism and the Jonas Brothers. Well, well right. Yeah, they're just, they're just videos. But now you guys, now, now there's, you know, the video essays you have there. There are people who either fundraise money through Patreon or other uh, services where they can use it to make, I don't know, feature-length stuff uh, on YouTube. Um, stuff that's, like, totally in their control that you can't really see um, playing out back then, especially with, like, uh, movie studios, like, fully controlling um, almost every aspect of production. Uh, so, I don't know. I though, yeah, I guess the only thing I would push back is just that the quality will drop because um, I would... I was actually going to mention the whole OBS stuff and people like getting into it and using it, but I still think the fact that like it's 15 years into the making of whatever it is the hell that's going on the internet, at least for video, high speed broadband across large audiences, that whole right spiel. That like at this point, like there is a lot of uh, material out there that people can use to. Uh, I hate using the word, but to innovate. Um, and are they things, using it, even, though? Make, either make things better than what they are right now or create new uh, ideas for video concepts. Because yeah. um, it wasn't too long ago that the video essayist thing was, like, a thing, um, like, when it started. Um, like, it definitely wasn't there, like, maybe 10 years ago, yep. 2010. You well, because you had a 15-minute upload limit. And before right. that, you but, had but, but, that, 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 but that's that's what I'm trying to say. Like, as as we're progressing with, like, um, with uh, internet speed and as well as access to internet, uh, hopefully that, you know, is an issue that gets resolved at some point in our lifetime. Uh, like, that, I would feel, correlates with uh, either quality of content or, or like... Um, new ideas for um just i don't know concepts i guess um i mean i guess a recent thing the the, the new thing right now is like yeah streaming um i'm not sure what is the thing um vtubing is also new um well not new new but uh, it 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 it, it, it's like as far as like in the west that stuff has definitely exploded recently in the past couple months yeah you might have to do with might have to do because of the pandemic maybe that's the only thing i can really say about that um but i can see how uh appealing it is yeah and and then also like as far as like what 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 you were saying um just sort of add on to that like you you i think i think you sort of like were trying to say like oh and how many people are gonna like use those things to innovate well like as there are more people there are more people who like have this sort of like creativity or cleverness or whatever it is to like you know do this thing in an unusual way yeah. and, and it's like you can never expect like who these people are going to be because it's like you know everyone has yeah. their own talents or whatever and like one person just and everybody does things in their own way basically so it's it's, it's sort of hard to say like until it's already happened like you know if people just keep trying stuff or whatever you know like you know you have teenagers like talking garbage into their phones or whatever and they're just like we're having a show where we talk about I don't know, uh, what do you have for breakfast or whatever? Like eventually, you know, like, like, like over time, like they start, like, like people do, um, sort of like, you know, if they throw themselves at it enough, like, like, you know, at least some people sort of like do end up doing things that are like interesting and novel, like no matter what, pretty much. All right. So an interesting question I have for the, the room, the metaphorical room is 
within a population, a city, a country, whatever, is the is the proportion of those in that population who will become innovators in an artistic form, whatever form it is, is that constant? And how does it change as the barrier to entry to the artistic medium change? What do you mean by constant? You mean is it a constant percentage? So, like, let's say, like, you have a, a city, and it turns out, just by, like, matter of fact, that 1% become, like, really good photographers or something. Mm-hmm. All right? And slowly, over the course of, like, their lifetimes and, like, people who are being brought up and becoming photographers um, or good photographers at that, the cost of film drops, cameras get cheaper, like, ability to put on, like, interesting effects get cheaper. How does that affect the percentage of which of those population become just as good or just as captivating, I should say, because it's hard to say what's good, right? Just as captivating, let's say, as professional photographers. How does that change? I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> wait, 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 that it does change. I mean, I'm inclined to say. I'm inclined to say that it does. I mean, the first thought that I had was like, if barrier of entry is like, like lower. Like, I feel like people can't, you know, do certain things because they just don't have access to it. Um, like, like was there's a lot of free stuff that you can get online. Like, I guess mm. streaming is always a quick go-to example, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, OBS yeah, is like, like free to use, and you can just set it up. And uh, like, I, I over time, maybe if you you know either accrue some money in some other way, you can maybe get more high tech stuff. But it's enough. To you also just need start. good internet. You need uh, like a good right. upload speed to be able to stream. Exactly. To do right, streaming, exactly. Sure. I mean, to do like let's say like digital just digital drawing. Hmm. You need like a couple bucks to buy a Raspberry Pi to like have a computer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and also a lot of people have uh drawing tablets which like start at fifty and, bucks. And then a question that goes is like as that as the cost of that tablet decreases, do you have more visual artists or do you have less or do you have the same? I, I don't know. I mean, I guess that would be um people would also need to be aware of that as well. Um, like if I knew that tablets were, you know, dropping in price, I'd fucking get one right now. Cause the one that I have broke, I, I'm use, I use a pen, um, like a bamboo thing or whatever for my laptop. Cause it's like a touch thing as well. So it's convenient, but, um, I, I feel like, yeah, like obviously barrier of entry lowering, but also awareness of that among other things as well. And that, that also applies to not just this, but also I guess like stuff in school, um, like even stuff for grad school. I guess in my uh, yeah. particular position uh, as like a first gen person, I had no fucking clue what to do at all. So I am still amazed that I like managed to get into grad school, much less like get accepted into like two at least. Well, two. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. So that's that's why I'm like very adamant about like, I mean, yeah, decreasing barrier of entry is always a big thing, but also just awareness because that um uh definitely helps the most i'll I'll, I'll ask if anyone is familiar with a, a character by the name of christopher knight no no, no. Oh, right. I, I, I miss, sorry, I missed that Christopher first Knight. part. 
Christopher Knight. I'd have to look it up real quick. Go don't on. look it up. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Completely defeats the don't, purpose. Don't look it up, Hector. Don't look it up. Sorry. Oh, I, he's an I, American Hector, journalist? Too. <laughs> I, don't know. I, I, I definitely did not look it up. <laughs> uh, he was born in a, a small town in Maine in 1965. He was a, a bit of a, a misanthrope. You know, didn't really fit in a lot as a kid, but grew up, you know, pretty uneventful unspectacular childhood after he graduated high school there was you know a a bit of uncertainty as to what he wanted to do in his life uh, where he wanted to go what what job he would pursue but one day he he vanished when the world needed him most (laughs) (laughs) he vanished no one knew where he went he didn't leave a message or tell anyone where he was going he just disappeared and no one saw him again. And, and that was, you know, right after he graduated high school in uh, the early 80s. No one saw him again until 2013. What? Wow. So C- Christopher drove off into the woods in Maine. They they did find his car, I think, a couple months, maybe a year or two down, uh, down the road. But... But... <laughs> but, but, but past the car, they really couldn't find any trace of where he'd gone. Now, in the in the intervening time period, there were always rumors of some sort of ghost or mountain man or hermit or someone who was responsible for stealing food and supplies from people's homes in this area of Maine. Uh, now, it was, it was filled with a lot of vacation homes. People often went there in the summer and then went back to wherever they lived uh, in the winter and when it got colder. And, you know, over this four, almost four-decade period, there were rumors and tales of this, this character or creature or whatever. And it was in 2013 when, uh, finally, at last, someone was, was able to get this guy on film. The police were able to make a, a, a good guess of where he would strike next, and they laid a trap. And a human trap? <laughs> Well, like, I, like, it was like a stakeout. I don't know. It was a big cardboard box with a stick propping it up. <laughs> and there was a Slim Jim hanging from it. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by Slim Jim. <laughs> Slim Jims are fucking nasty, by the way. Don't eat that. I love Slim Jims. It'll kill you. <laughs> and, and, it, and, and so it turns out that this, this ghost is Christopher Knight, who no Ooh. one has seen in 40 years. Oh, my God. <laughs> he, he, he's, and as, as, according to him... The only person he's spoken like, two words in this entire forty-year period. He didn't speak to himself. He didn't say anything. His only human interaction was like two separate instances with hunters, where like he ran into them in the woods, like nodded, said hello, and then walked on. I mean, they had no reason to believe he was yeah this 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 fabled character, and you know he, he had this like grove. In the forest, like dense trees, only like an expert uh, woodsman would be able to detect that someone was actually living like inside this grove. He had these like camouflage tarps, you know, and, you know, maybe the size of like a large living room. He (laughs) had this encampment uh, and the way he survived was not pleasant. You know, he had no outdoorsmanship experience. He wasn't like the kind of person who was always outdoors as a kid and knew his way around the forest. Like, he just ran out there 
and had to figure out how to survive. What was the motive? He didn't want to be around people. World weary? Yeah, he, he, he wanted to be on his own. It was as simple as that. And he didn't have experience. He didn't know how to hunt. And so he stole. And he, he took food, you know, generally non-perishables from people's, uh, from people's kitchens and their cabins. And he would eat off of it's like Slim Jims and Doritos. And, you know, he had really terrible nutrition for 40 years. Dang. Uh, like, like one of the most striking things I remember from reading this story, there's, there's a, a pretty uh, long article, like, like a number of articles uh, about him. He, he, would, he would fatten up over the summer by eating like a ton of like really just like junk, but like super calorie dense foods, knowing that he would be like uh, low on supplies over the, over the winter. And he would just like bundle up and like pretty much hibernate and just live off of his meager rations and like the, the fat that he'd accumulated like to, to survive it out until, and, and he did this year after year after year. And, you know, he would steal books. That was like his primary form of entertainment. Uh, but then he got caught. He got he got put into to prison for a couple months. But I think the state recognized that even though he'd stolen from a lot of people, he wasn't like a criminal. He was just a very unusual, different person. <laughs> uh, and so then he he eventually went on parole. And I think he's been living with uh, his mom, who hadn't seen him in forty years. How's that conversation gotta go? It's like you didn't even call. You didn't send a letter. <laughs> Yeah, and and that's the end I of the story. You know, I like tried a couple, to. Oh, sorry. No, go uh, for it. I, I tried to call you on the cup with the string on the end of it. <laughs> string going off into the woods. <laughs> Mom. It's, it's like so, like you know, so he he allowed a couple journalists to interview him, but aside from that, he's vanished again. Really? Well, too was like, like his mom's living room. Oh. <laughs> and, and, and that's the story. Like I, oh my. I, I, I read this, and I was like, this is the most bizarre. <sighs> life like when you'd given us this prompt of like someone with like an unusual i was thinking oh like i don't know there's a bunch of like important figures in history who have like very unusual like i know like 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 hitler had a weird like Like like, (laughs) (laughs) if you really think about it you could call it a struggle (laughs) that's gonna be today's episode's uh name hitler's struggle A life no context struggle. for anything at all except for this one time in the in the show. Um, yeah, but just like, like just like so bizarre, just like this normal dude who's like, screw it, I'm living in the woods. All right, it could happen to anyone. All right, all right, happen to you. Odds. <laughs> <laughs> That is an apple. <laughs> are, 